What do you do in times of crisis? Maybe the better question is, who do you become? This week we are in Acts chapter 16, a perfect chapter for our corona crisis stage of life that we're in. And I take your questions. This is your favorite night of the week. It's The Deep End with Tim Hatch. Good evening, everybody, everybody, everywhere, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, or on the radio, or on Spotify, wherever you are. My name is Tim Hatch, and this is the Deep End Podcast, and I am so glad to be with you tonight, whether it's tonight for you, or this morning, or whenever you are listening or watching. Glad you're here. So today, we continue the Deep End Podcast with Acts chapter 16 in just a moment, and I just want to take a moment to welcome those of you on YouTube, and please like and subscribe us over at youtube.com slash TV. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe and hit the notification bell underneath the channel so that you can get in uh, updates to your phone, smartphone device, whatever, when we are live. Also, welcome to our Spotify audience. Welcome to WEZE Radio in Boston, 445 Drive Home Time Slot. Hello, everybody in Boston. Uh, love you. Thank God for you. Stay strong. Stay safe. Um, we are going to get to your questions today, and I am so excited for that because your questions are always important to me. And so if you have a question, please don't hesitate to send them over to ask at DeepNTV or 508-316-9333. Anytime, anyway, send them over. Let's get to our segment on Ask Anything. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Ooh, I like that new stinger that we just made right there. That was pretty cool. Anyway, Michael is over there in the studio production booth. Hello, Michael. Hey, what's going on? How you hanging out uh, with this whole COVID crisis thing? Oh, man. I'm just, I'm drained. Yeah. I'm drained. You've been working but, hard. Thank you. Thank very you. hard and very good, by the way. Thank you. Doing a great job. Uh, shout out to the production team. Always doing a great job for us over here at Waters Church and on the deep appreciate end. Appreciate so. that, Pastor. Well, we appreciate. <laughs> I appreciate you. You and Andre. Andre doesn't say much in the deep end, but hello, yeah. Andre. He's... He's he's a, he's a singer. He's not a speaker. You know, as know. as he would say, I'm a musician. Yes, I like I like that. Singers sing and preachers preach. All right, that's yeah. right. Let's. <laughs> All right. Always send your questions. We love your questions. I got three questions today. Three questions came in. Michael's going to ask questions, and I will do my best to answer them by the grace of God. Let's go to question number one. Okay, uh, general question. I'm getting married. Here, let me put it up on the screen. Actually. I'm getting married, and my wife attends a different church than Waters. We both serve uh, three to four times per month at our prospective churches, and the serve leaders rely on our help. I'm wondering what advice you would have for couples like us. Do we keep serving at our individual churches, choose one of the churches to attend together, alternate weekly, or try to do both each week? Okay, well, this is the guy asking, obviously. He's saying my wife-to-be. So here's my, my answer. Uh, tell your wife to be submissive and join Waters Church. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I mean, that was an easy one right there. And uh, if if that doesn't if that answer doesn't uh, work for you, well, then I would just say pick a church. And I don't want you to keep going back and forth. And I don't want you to attend separate churches. I don't I, I don't think that's wise. I think it's healthy for you to attend church together, raise your future kids in the faith in that particular church, so that they're connected to their friends in that church. Um, yeah, I'm not a fan of splitting up families. In the church, I think churches should bring families together, not split them up. So pick a church, and you're the man. Pick this one. 
and then serve. Serve that church together. Uh, that's no, not a, that's yeah. not a self-serving reply. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, well, I mean, don't try to do both each week. No, no, not at all. That's my answer. Next question. Okay. Um, here we go. I have a question about uh, the second death and hell. My friend was saying that the second death, uh, people will cease to exist and there isn't any eternal torment. Just wanted to hear your take on it. Please and thank you. Mm. That's a great question. I love these kinds of questions because it means that you're intentionally thinking about um, some of the more darker aspects of uh, the faith. And that is that there is a hell and there is eternal there is an eternal judgment. Now, what your friend says is not always what the Bible says. And I think that's a big deal. And I've made this point before for people who watch Deep End. You've heard me say this. Just because your friend says it doesn't mean it's true. So does the Bible say it? And I will say this to kind of to at least not completely obliterate what your friend is saying. There is debate about this issue in Christian theology. There's there are notable, respectable members of the Christian faith who argue for eternal conscious torment, and there are those who argue against it. Uh, it's called conditional um, eternity, which is your eternal punishment is conditioned upon how bad you were. I mean, for lack of a better term, right? So you are you are punished according to your deeds, and I and I and I believe that there is space. In Christian theology, to um, embrace either view, uh, I don't like to come down uh, firmly on either view in ministry. You know, we are commended to warn people. Okay, what does the Bible ask us to do? Uh, it definitely in in the end of Jude, Second uh, Peter, and all over the Gospels, Jesus is very firm. In fact, no one talked more about hell than Jesus. Um, this is real. Eternal punishment is a real painful experience that we want to do everything possible to warn people about and to keep them away from. See, it's not necessary to be eternally punished. You can be saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus in an instant. The thief on the cross led a horrible life, and he met Jesus in paradise that very day after his life ended. He avoided eternal punishment. So I'm not going to... Um, suggest that your friend is totally wrong. I'm not going to say he's totally right. Okay, so I think that there are there's a debate here, but I would very strongly caution adopting the conditional view on the basis that it suggests, therefore, that hell is not so bad. That 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 could be the unintended consequence. And we don't want to, we don't want to convey that message. And the reason why is because again, Jude and Peter and Jesus do not convey that message. They convey a very stern warning against eternal punishment. There is a, actually a passage in the Bible where Jesus cast demons out of pigs. And if you remember, the demons, I'm sorry, did he, no, he cast demons out of a man, sorry, into pigs. Okay, now, <laughs> if you remember, he cast them into the pigs because the demons begged him not to send them into the abyss. And so just think about that picture for a moment, that the abyss was so bad and the demons were so aware of how bad it was that they didn't want to be, they'd rather live in pigs mm -hmm. than to go to the abyss. So the question is an honest one, and I thank you for it. I just don't want to um, present this idea, hell's not so bad. I, we are commended in Scripture repeatedly to warn people against going to hell with every 
ounce of strength that we have. This is why we proclaim the gospel. This is why we tell everyone and anyone about Jesus. This is why we make our church as comfortable as possible for people far from God so that they will hear the gospel and not go to hell. Okay, we, what we, have a, we have a saying we throw around here. We want to make it hard for people in our community to go to hell. So why? Because hell is that bad. So uh, just so you know, there is debate, and I, I hesitate on coming down on either side. Hmm. That's my answer. Next question. Okay. Um, I am wrestling with wrapping my head around the Trinity. I was hoping for your explanation. My understanding at this point is Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father make up God or Godhead, if you will. Uh, they are three distinct persons, but all God at the same time. Let me know what you think. Thanks, Thor. Well, if anybody should know the answer to this question, is the God of Thunder. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Aren't you up there on the Olympic mountain there, Olympus mountain? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wrong, wrong, wrong set of gods. Sorry, yeah, those are yeah. the Nordic gods. Yeah. I'm sorry, I went to Greek mythology. Cap- anyway, capital G. We're going to get to Greek mythology G. today. That's why. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, so well, Thor. Let me tell you, um, you are not alone in wrestling with this, and theologians have been wrestling with this since um, since the time of Christ. You know, Jesus's claims to be God are very clear in the scriptures. Uh, he says in in John's Gospel, "I am." I and the Father are one. He says to Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Then he talks about another comforter who will be with you, who is just like me. Uh, that is the Holy Spirit. So you have this three-in-one issue, or I don't want to say issue, but this the- three-in-one theological construct that is indeed worth wrestling through. And you are in a long line of Christian believers for 2,000 years who have been wrestling through that concept and have not come to a solution we can really fully understand or wrap our heads around. It is one of the theological statements of the Christian faith that draws us into mystery, not certainty. And And I want you to hear me say that again. The Trinity is intended to draw us into mystery, not certainty. You see, a God that you are certain about in every respect is really a God that you can understand and ultimately f- finite by nature. A God that you fully can describe, you can fully understand, is therefore now subjected to your level of understanding. And if there is one thing Scripture makes pertinently clear, uh from the prophets to the New Testament, it is that God is not fully understandable by humans. He is infinite, we are finite. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Before the foundation of the earth, he was God, is God, always will be God. He never had a beginning, he has no end. This whole idea of us understanding God is completely um, out of bounds in proper Christian theology. We should embrace mystery. We should embrace uh, what we cannot understand. It should, it should draw us toward God that we don't understand him fully, because that's what makes him God. He knows us fully. We will never know him fully. Uh, there are so many other theological statements that uh, we don't fully understand. God, uh, Christ is fully God and fully man. How do we reconcile that? We don't. Um, God is sovereign in electing some to salvation, and yet man is responsible for his sins, and if he rejects Christ, he goes to hell. How do we resolve that? We don't. We embrace mystery. This is what our forefathers in the faith, in the councils of the church, 
from 325 in Nicaea to 416 in Chalcedon and, and others. These are what they, this is how they approached theology. It was beautiful. They didn't try to resolve questions. They embraced the mystery and it drew that they saw it as drawing them closer to God in, in the sense that he is the unattainable mystery. He is the ultimate goal of our lives. And we are ever growing in our knowledge of him and ever pursuing him. And in our pursuing him, we are becoming shaped by him. And so that is my answer. It's Again, like the last question, I'm not going to come down hard on here's how you here's how you understand it because that that would limit who he is. He is one God in three persons: God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we are to embrace that, not necessarily describe that. So that's my answer to that question. Well said. Yeah. Anyway, I hope you're um, I hope you're hanging strong uh, during COVID nineteen. I am tired of it. I don't know if you are over there, Michael. Are you tired of COVID nineteen over there? Get, getting there. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm so so tired of it. <laughs> I really don't have a COVID commentary except to just stay strong and know that our church is making plans right now to open up again. We are tentatively scheduling our first service for May twenty fourth. Okay. Now there's got to be a lot of things, a lot of a lot of a lot of. Uh, uh, dominoes have to fall for us to get there. So I want to ask you in the COVID commentary today to con- to pray and pray hard. Pray for our governors, Romando in Rhode Island and Baker in Massachusetts, that they will make decisions that are favorable toward people of faith. I know we live in New England, and, and I don't know if we are very high on their priority list, but I'm trusting that they will be favorable toward us. And we wrote we're writing uh, the governors of our states a letter from our church to let them know we intend on reopening. We want to reopen with within the guidelines of the state, but we want to reopen. We need their favor. We need their support. And I know this for you, that being apart from Christian community is toxic to your Christianity. Being yep. away from Christian community yep. is toxic to your Christianity. It is toxic to my Christianity. Um, I'm moody more now than I've ever been in a long time because we've just not been together. It, it hurts me. So I know if it's hurting me, it's hurting you. You're not alone. We're all in this together, but you know, the time is going to come where we need to get over this. Uh, actually researched this last night and found something interesting. The 1918 Spanish flu, which swept across the world, killed 675,000 Americans, I believe 675,000 Americans. Okay. So we're up to only like 65,000. Uh, with COVID. Now, I hate to say only because that's a lot of people, but nonetheless, comparative to the Spanish flu in 1918, it is one-tenth of the level of death. We have experienced one-tenth. And I did find out last night through my studies and my, my research that churches did shut down during that crisis, and they shut down for a month. And now this this was before the time of online ministry, obviously, yeah. before TV, before any kind of you know, was radio or, around in the 1918s, 19, 1919? Yes. Was it? It was there? Yes. A little bit? I think so. Probably just in the wealthy homes, whatever. Yeah, if you, if you had a radio in your house, you were you were rich. Anyway, I don't, I'm sure that churches were not on the radio. No. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> fa- Benny Hinn wasn't born here. Yeah. No, <laughs> the fact is, is that they shut down for that crisis uh, 100 years ago, and so now we've had to do that, and we are doing this. We shut down. We stopped our services public services, for the sake of public safety. But we are going to come back. It is going to come back. It came back in 1918. It's going to come back again. None of us even knew that churches shut down in 1918 until recently, right? Until right now, for some of you. (laughs) I didn't know until last night. But what I just thought about as I researched that is that this will get... Be past us. This th- we will get past this. We will be back together again. And I do believe we will return to some semblance of normalcy relatively quickly. Now... 
you need to pray for us that we can do that right and we can do that uh, efficiently and we can do that effectively and then we can do that most importantly for your spiritual development. So that's my COVID commentary. May 24th, keep the date in prayer. Uh, more details to come. We sent out a survey to our church. Hopefully you're filling out the survey and getting that back to us as quickly as possible. It's going to help us make plans that are appropriate for your safety and at the same time, your spiritual development. So that's the COVID commentary. I'm looking forward to seeing your faces again. I'm really looking forward to seeing your faces again because all I have looked at for these last eight weeks is the staff and these cameras. And as much as I love... What are you trying to say about my Well, as much as I love you guys, (laughs) okay, I love you. (laughs) I need to see somebody else. Uh, I miss the church, fam. Yeah, I miss you. Miss you big time. In in the famous words of of Bill Belichick, I'm on to the 24th. Yes. (laughs) Yes. We're on to post We're on to the 24th. Yeah. Okay, so that's the COVID commentary. Hope to see you soon. Now we will get to the Book of Acts after this brief message. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv slash partner or on the cash app with the cash tag, the Deep End TV. All right, the book of Acts, chapter 16, and I have titled this talk, Power for Living in Times of Crisis. Power for Living in Times of Crisis. And the key word is crisis. Faith goals when life goes terribly wrong. If there's one thing that the past eight weeks has shown me and probably shown you is that life will not go the way you expect. Life will go wrong. And we've all experienced this globally, but many of you have experienced this individually or in your families or socially or some other way. Uh, at other times in your life. Like you thought the marriage was going to work and it didn't. You thought the, 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 the doctor's report was going to be positive and it, and it wasn't. You, you thought you were going to have that job and you didn't get it. Whatever crisis that you go through. Can I help you today in learning from the book of Acts how to have power for living in times of crisis? Times of crisis are unavoidable, but God is sovereign in the midst of them and we can get better because of them. The question is not always, what should we do? The question is, who should we become in times of crisis? Let's do a little word study, shall we? A little word study, a little etymology study. You know what etymology is? It's the uh, study of the origins of words, right? So a little etymology study (laughs) of the word crisis, okay? Because it's the corona crisis after all, right? Crisis, the the dictionary definition is this, a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. That's how the dictionary defines crisis today. But did you know the origin of the word crisis in English, it actually stems through two different languages and comes to us from the Greek language. And I want to unpack this because this is really cool. I found this out today. Um, The the first form of the word crisis comes from the Greek, uh, krinon. Krinon, which actually was the Greek word for to separate, to divide, or to judge, uh, sorry, to decide or to judge, to separate, to decide or to judge. In other words, the Greeks define this term as this is what separates you. This is what this is what judges you. This is what sets things apart from each other. Krinon, crisis is what separates people from people. Really, it does. Then this word comes from the Greek and it goes into the Latin and it becomes crisis with a K. Uh, and the ter- and the definition in the Latin language for crisis is a turning point in a disease 
That change which indicates recovery or death. Now look at what it becomes. It becomes a word that signifies that there's a turning point here in a disease, something that is going to determine whether the person recovers or dies. That is phenomenally interesting to me. Again, etymology really helps us understand the depths of a word and how we come to the word and then how oftentimes we misinterpret a word compared to what it was originally intended to mean. So then in about the 1400s, okay, 1400s AD, the word becomes an English term. So it goes from the Greek to the Latin to the English, and the word in English is Christ-y, if you want to say, uh, C-R-I-S-E. And that is, deter- that is defined from the 1400s as vitally important or decisive state of things, point at which change must come, and look at this, for better or for worse. That is the original definition in the English language for the word that we get crisis from. Which brings me to this powerful truth. Think about these definitions. Put them all together, and here's the truth. Here's, here's, what's, here's what crisis does. Crisis is a decisive moment for you that is going to determine your future for better or for worse. Yeah, that's what a crisis is. So brings me to this truth. The truth is this. My life and your life, they are going to be shaped by your crises much more than by your comforts. You are going to become who you are going to become far more often by the hard times in your life than the happy or the easy times in your life. And we all know this is true. We all know this is true. What has really shaped you into the person that you are, for better or for worse? Say some of you are bitter. You're bitter against God because God let you down in the past and you let that crisis create bitterness in you. And yet I know some people have been through the exact same thing as you or even worse than you, and they just responded differently. And instead of getting bitter, they got better and they believed in God and they trusted God through it and and their character got better, not bitter, as a result of their crises. So I, I want us to take a different look at crises. I want us to take a different look at the time in which we live because crises are, are decision moments. They are, they are decisive moments in our lives. They help shape who we are going to become for better or for worse. So here's my New Testament definition of the term crisis. Here's the New Testament, Testament definition. A chance for God to work in you and for you in ways you never thought possible. That's the New Testament definition. And where do I get the definition from? I get it from the stories of the Bible, the stories of the New Testament, and particularly from this powerful, powerful chapter, Acts 16. Now, I know I've been saying this week in and week out now as we go through the book of Acts, but I want to say it one more time. This chapter... This is one of the best chapters in the Bible. It really is an amazing chapter. And I know, I keep saying this about the book of Acts. I'm going to keep saying it because I love the book of Acts. The book of Acts reminds me of what the church is all about and and really propels my faith from my generation because if they could get through it in their generation when Christianity was illegal and was it was, it was, it was outlawed and, and they weren't beloved and they had no cultural cachet and they had no freedom and no rights and no tax-exempt status, if they could do it, guess what? We can do it. And so let's take a look at our crises. Let's take a look at coronavirus. Let's take a look at all that we're going through and say, you know what this is? This is a chance for God to work in me and through me in ways I never thought possible. Acts chapter 16, let's go. Verse 1. Paul, 
also came to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Okay, I take you back to how we got to this point, and that is because Paul, Barnabas, separated at the end of Acts chapter 15. You remember they had a sharp dispute. They separated, and I said last week, that's okay. Sometimes, sometimes the church has to go separate ways. People have to go separate ways because they have different bents in ministry, different styles. Paul, more A-type, more ferocious, more business-like, more agenda-driven. Barnabas, more people-driven, more compassion-driven, more kindness and second and third chance-driven. And both are necessary for Christian leadership and development. We don't, we don't decry either one. We thank God for both, okay? But the fact of the matter is, now Paul has set off with a guy named Silas, and he goes back to the cities that he planted churches in. That was, his, that was his intention from Acts chapter 15, verse 36. So he and Silas set off, and they come to Derby and Lystra, where, they had been, where he and Barnabas had been, and they meet up with this guy named Timothy. And Timothy, by the way, is where I get my name from. Actually, my name does come from the Bible. My parents named me Timothy for the guy right here we're about to read about. A couple facts about Timothy. He comes from a mixed family uh, of faith, a mixed faith family. So you've heard of mixed families maybe by race, but but here we have a mixed faith family, uh, and that is where one parent believes in Christ and the other parent does not believe in Christ. And so uh, Timothy's father, the scripture says, was a Greek, which is another way of saying that he was not a Jew, okay? He was not um, probably open to the gospel. Uh, he probably never was open to the gospel, and uh, despite maybe his best efforts as a young boy to convert his father, he never did. His mother was a Christian and a believer and a Jew, and um, uh, came to came to Christ. Uh, we know this because he has uh, these female influences in his life. We read this in First Timothy from Paul the Apostle as he writes to him. But you have to imagine this would have been hard on Timothy to have uh, uh, parents with different faith backgrounds, different beliefs. And and I and I stress this in our churches so many times when I tell when I preach on uh, the importance of marriage and the importance of uh, dating and and your your decision about that. And that is, you've got to marry somebody who's in the faith. If you're a Christian, this is like, this is a, this is a non-negotiable, in my opinion. And you've got to do your due diligence to make sure they are in the faith. Because nothing will harm a child more than to hear conflicting messages about the most important part of who they are from their parents. And most of the time, in my experience in any way, I have, I've seen the, the, the children will adopt the faith of the father. They, this is, I think there's a lot of research about this out there, too. Most of the time, uh, in mixed faith families, the children follow the father's faith. So if, if dad's a Christian, there's a good chance the kids become Christian. If mom is a Christian, dad's not, there's a good chance they become non-Christian. Fathers have an immense uh, impact on the life of faith in their children. And so I always say this, young, especially young ladies, I know, it gets hard, you're lonely, you want somebody to love you, you want to be loved by somebody else, you want the romance, you want the, you know, the idyllic uh, American family. Listen, don't sacrifice your child's faith on the altar of your need for sexual or relational fulfillment with somebody who is not in the faith. Please, I can't, I can't alarm you to this enough. I can't, I can't overspeak this. <laughs> Find someone who loves Jesus and love them. Anyway, Timothy comes from this mixed family. And by God's grace, he actually becomes a mighty man of God. And he is, 
Here in the scripture says he's spoken well of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So he's got a great reputation. He was probably one to Christ when Paul was there earlier in Acts chapter 15. Paul comes back to the area. There's Timothy. He's got this reputation. And though he comes from this mixed family, though he comes from a family where his father does not believe, this is great. He actually ends up becoming a pastor of uh, the church in Ephesus, which is one of the most important cities in the first century, one of the most important churches in the first century. In fact, there's good evidence that he actually becomes the pastor of the church that John, the apostle, attends with Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the city of Ephesus. Could you imagine the responsibility to be the pastor of John, the apostle, and Mary, the mother of Jesus? Like, that is incredible to me. But anyway... There are two books in your Bible that are written to this guy because he was a young pastor and he was probably struggling and didn't have a lot of self-confidence. And Paul, his father in the faith, writes to him and says, be of good, good strength, don't, don't give in to fear, uh, run your race, press on, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, all these wonderful encouragements. And I just bring this up because Timothy, though he started in one place, he ended up in a powerful place. And the same can be true for you. It's not about where you come from. It's about where God brings you to. That's the lesson that we find in Timothy's life. You may have come from a mixed family, spiritually speaking, a, a, a mixed faith family. And again, there's no issue with interracial marriage, black and white or Asian and Hispanic and all that stuff. There's no issue about that. That that Old Testament standard was because your nationality was tied to your religious system. But in the New Testament, all bets are off. You know, through Christ, all bets are off. An Asian Christian and a Hispanic Christian can get married, of course, right? But the Bible absolutely condemns interfaith marriages. But nonetheless, maybe you came from that. Maybe you came from that. And it's not about where you came from. It's about where God's bringing you to. Maybe you came from a faith with a family with no faith. And it's not about where you came from. It's about where God is bringing you to. And what I love about Timothy is he gets adopted spiritually by Paul. Paul will one day say in 1 Corinthians 4.17, he will call Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He calls him my true son elsewhere in the Bible. See, it's not about your, spirit, your, your natural family, your natural origins. It's about your spiritual family the people that adopt you as leaders and mentors in Christ. <coughs> anyway, let's go on. Acts chapter 16, verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Now look at that. He circumcised Timothy because of the Jews who were in those places. That's interesting. Because remember, last week, Acts chapter 15, the whole chapter was about the fact that Gentiles did not need to get circumcised. But here Paul circumcises Timothy because of the Jews. But what Jews? The Jews who are in those places. That's an important qualifier. Hold on for a moment as we read the scripture. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance for the, uh, the, the observance, I'm sorry, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So they are actually delivering the news of Acts 15, which is what? That you don't have to become Jewish to become Christian. You don't have to get circumcised to become Christian. So why does Paul circumcise Timothy? What's the deal here, Paul? Are you, are you saying one thing and doing another? No. No, no, no. He's bringing news to the Jews of the decision. But here's the thing for Timothy. See, Timothy has got to be circumcised in this situation because Paul does not want Timothy to be an offense as Paul speaks to 
uh, people who are far from God, Jewish people who are not yet familiar with the truth of Scripture. See, there's another passage in the Bible where Paul talks about that he took Titus with him to Jerusalem, and though Titus was a Greek and not a Jew, he did not circumcise Titus. So on one hand, he circumcises Timothy when he goes to the disciples or the believers uh, <clears throat> in Derby and Lystra, and when he goes to the believers in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, with, with Titus, he doesn't circumcise him. So what's with the two standards? Why circumcise Timothy and not Titus? Why? Here's why. Because when he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to the people who should have been in the faith the longest and had the most grace towards people far from God. And when he was going to Derby and Lystra, he was going to people who were kind of new to the faith. And so he makes a concession to them. He makes a concession, let's get him circumcised, because I don't want that to become a stumbling block for people who are far from God. Here's what Paul is doing. Remember, he says this in 1 Corinthians 9.22, and it's a powerful, powerful phrase. He says, I became all things to all men in order that I might win some. In other words, if I needed to look like a Jew to make sure that I didn't create boundaries between me and the Jews, walls between me and the Jews to win them, I became like a Jew so that I could, I could tell them about Jesus. And then when it came to people who were, far from, who, were, who were far from God and not Jewish, I became like a non-Jew so that I could reach people who were not Jewish. The point is, is that the, 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 the proclamation of the gospel was central to what Paul was doing. Nothing was more important. And so he made accommodations to make sure that nothing got in the way of proclaiming Jesus to a different kind of person. <clears throat> Which makes me say this. What concessions do you maybe need to make to reach somebody with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Maybe there's concessions that you need to make about your political affiliation to reach somebody for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe there are concessions with how you spend your time or your money what, what concessions can you make that don't break God's moral law? We're not, we're not ask, I'm not asking you to sin, but what things other than sin can you do to make the message of Jesus heard through you by somebody who is different than you? See, that's, that's one of the most important things we can do as Christians. Verse 5, we've got to go on because we'll never get through this chapter if we don't. It says this, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia having, forbidden, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Okay, what do I see here right off the, right off the uh, page? I see two times, not one time. I see two times when first Paul is forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia, okay? So he wants to go to Asia, and the, whole, the Holy Spirit says, nope, you're not going. And then he tries to go into another area, Bithynia, but again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And by the way, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus are one, okay? So it's the same Spirit saying no. Paul, I don't know if you, you see this like I see it, but I see it very clearly. Paul gets shot blocked by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he gets stopped by God. Like he wants to go to Asia and God says, no. And then he wants to go to Bithynia and God says, no, again. And I thought about this. Why? Doesn't the Holy Spirit want all people to hear? Doesn't God want everybody to hear the message of the gospel? And the answer is yes, unequivocally, yes. That's all over the Bible. First Timothy, first Peter. He wants all men to be saved, okay? But 
the Holy Spirit knows when they should hear. And it's an important distinction for us as Christians. Some people are not ready to hear the message of the gospel. Remember when Jesus says, don't give to dogs what is holy, Matthew 7, 6? He says, do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What is he saying? He's saying some people are not worth the time at that moment. Some people are not ready to hear. So don't be the person who just keeps telling them and they keep smacking you upside the head and saying, I don't want to hear it anymore. In Luke chapter 10, we talked about this last week, he tells us to shake the dust off of our feet and walk out of the town if people will not listen to them. The point that we have to understand from this passage is that though Paul wanted to go to Asia, the Holy Spirit stops him from going where he wants to go to get Paul to go where the Holy Spirit wants him to go. And I believe, I have to believe, it's because at that moment, the people in Asia where he wanted to go were not yet ready to hear the gospel first. But number two, I think it was also the Holy Spirit saying, there's a more important place I need to go, I need you to go to now. And it's a very important principle for us to understand. Some people are not ready to hear. I have a friend. His name is Stephen Bennett. He, he runs a ministry in Connecticut, and it's a ministry to help people with same-sex attraction break free from the struggle, the struggle of homosexual attraction. And he's had great success with many, many people. He used to be a homosexual himself, was saved powerfully by Christ. Well, years ago, he used to load up buses and take people to Provincetown, this bastion of LGBTQ plus all the groups over there, <laughs> Provincetown, Massachusetts, on the tip of Cape Cod. And he used to take them there on a bus and hand out tracts during their pride parade. And he told me it went terribly. They, they didn't want the, what they had to offer. They threw away their gifts. They threw away the Bibles. They... They, they disrespected him, and he went a couple years, and then he stopped. And he stopped because he should have stopped. Some people just don't want to hear. They're not ready to hear. They want to reject it. When they reject, you walk away. When they I know Christians struggle with this because surely God wants all people to visit. Yes, he does, but not everybody's ready. Now, here's the interesting thing about the area of Asia where Paul wanted to go, that though he doesn't get to go here in Acts chapter 16, later on in Acts, he will eventually go to Asia. The point being this, just because they aren't ready to hear today doesn't mean they won't be ready to hear tomorrow. And so for maybe in your life, maybe there's somebody out there that you're trying to win to Christ and they're just not ready to hear. Here's what you do. Stop bugging them. Stop harassing them and pray for them. Like let the Holy Spirit work on them. Maybe this corona crisis will work on them now. And as you leave them and give them space, maybe their hearts will start to open and listen. Okay, I know, I know for us, Corona Crisis has been a great thing for our church in that more people are listening to our messages now than ever before. More people are tuning in or being willing to tune in than ever before because of this crisis. But here's what I love from this passage, and it brings me to an important point. Just because Paul is told no by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean Paul has failed. Um, he has to hear from God that though he has these great intentions and these great plans, God has to say no, and it's okay. It's okay for us to read about it. I, I love the fact that it's recorded in Holy Scripture that, that Paul had to be shot blocked by the Holy Spirit twice, not once, twice, <laughs> in back-to-back -back verses. And it's recorded in the Holy Scripture to give us hope, to say, you know what, sometimes God's going to say no. And just because he says no to your best intentions and your best plans does not make you a failure. And some of you might say, well, well, you know, how do I hear 
when God says no? Well, I believe the voice of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the Holy Spirit is there. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21 says this, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, I believe that there's a witness in the, in the Christian's heart, the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, you'll start to do something, you'll try something, and you'll just, you'll hear the Holy Spirit, like Paul does here, say, this isn't right. Turn around. Go the other way. Have I experienced that? Yeah. I can actually remember uh, several times in my life when this happened in my life where uh, I, I really believe that God wanted this and he didn't. He wanted something else. And one, one of those times was when I was picking colleges as a high school graduate. I, I wanted one particular college. I thought that was the one that God wanted me to, to go to. And I went, and as I got on the campus, not, not for uh, the start of the school year, but to just visit the campus, the whole time I was there, the Holy Spirit just kept saying no inside me. I just felt like this isn't it. This isn't where he wants me. And interestingly enough, I was totally de- dejected. I thought, I thought, that's it. You know, I'm not going to go there. I don't know where I'm going to go. And through relationships and other people and pastors in my life, I, I went to the school. I went to visit the school that I inevitably, inevitably went to. And as soon as I stepped on the campus, it was like the Holy Spirit said, yes. And so what I thought was right was actually wrong for me at that time. And looking back, I can say it was absolutely right. God was in it the whole way. There was another time in leading this church where there was a building uh, on a main road in our town here on Route 1 that I, I was convinced God wanted us to have that building. And this is way back. This is way back in 2006. I remember I used to drive to that building, and I used to Jericho march that building alone in the middle of the day. I used to walk around and pray, God, give us this building. God, give us this building. God never gave us that building. God actually gave us a different building. And a couple of years after we got into our old building, uh, before this building, um, that building was condemned and was destroyed. And it's just a kind of you know, confirmation that there is this witness in the Holy Spirit in your heart, of the Holy Spirit in your heart, that tells you um, not to go certain places. Now, here's what you've got to remember. Just because you get it wrong a couple times doesn't mean you should give up. Just because you, 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 you tried something and the Holy Spirit said no doesn't mean you're a failure. This is recorded in Holy Scripture for your sake so that you can learn. Even Paul sometimes got it wrong, and the Holy Spirit still used him in spite of that, and it's okay, which brings me to faith goals, okay? I got some faith goals for you today. Here's faith goal number one, to not let fear of getting it wrong hold me prisoner to indecision, to not let fear of getting it wrong hold me prisoner of indecision. So you tried something and it didn't work. Are you going to let that one time it didn't work cause you to never try again? Maybe you tried a certain life that you thought this is what I was going to go after and it didn't work. And so you're like, that's it, I give up. Or you tried a job or you tried a career path or you tried a relationship and it didn't work. Are you going to just sit there and say, now I'm not, I'm not going to make a move until I know for sure that it is of God? You can't live like that, friend. You can't live in indecision. You've got to make moves. And what I love about Paul here is that he's willing to be shot blocked by the Holy Spirit, and he keeps going forward because he knows no matter what the details might be or might not be, the main goal is still the main goal, and that is to live as a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's go on. Verse 8, here's what he says. Here's what it says. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, now this is an essential moment in the decision-making process of Paul, in that he 
What does he do? He hears clearly and he goes. So when God speaks, this is the issue, right? So maybe you've had a couple of moments where you thought this was of God and it ended up not being of God, and then God says, now go this way, and you sat there and you sat on your hands because it was scary. Macedonia was a different, totally different area. It was a totally different kind of place, and we're going to see that in just a moment. Yet Paul, knowing that God was saying go, went. See, when it's clear, act. And that's the other lesson here. Don't sit in the decision. Try some things. If they fail, listen to God. When it's clear, make the move. And that's exactly what Paul does. So verse 11. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman, women who had come together. Okay, now, real quickly, uh, please notice that this is a big moment in the book of Acts for a couple of reasons. Number one, we begins here in Acts chapter 16, verse 11, which means that Luke has joined Paul's missionary team. The writer of Acts has now met up with Paul and is now part of the team. He's not just hearing the stories, he's living the stories. But the second and probably the most incredible part of this passage is that he gets to Philippi, a leading city in the district of Macedonia. Why do I stress this? Do you know why? Because Philippi is the first city where the gospel enters a region of the world that we today know as Europe. This is huge. It's, it's a moment in the scripture you might just kind of skim over, but it's actually enormous because this is the first place in Europe that hears the gospel. Why am I stressing that? Because for 1,500 years of human history, Europe was the centerpiece of Christianity. In fact, the Catholics still believe it's the centerpiece of Christian history, of Christianity. Rome, the Vatican, is right there in the middle of Europe. Europe shapes Christianity for 1,500 years, and the very first place that it came to in Europe, the gospel came to in Europe, was this city called Philippi. And it is so incredible how the church starts to take shape in, uh, in Philippi. Let's, let's take a look at it. He goes down to the riverside, and the reason why we're asked to see that he went down to the riverside is important because it's going to help us understand Philippi. On the Sabbath, he can't go to synagogue. That was Paul's habit, to go to synagogue. No, he has to go to the riverside. What does that mean? It means there was, no, there was no synagogue in Philippi. Why was there no synagogue in Philippi? Because according to Roman law, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men in the city to have a synagogue. So there's not even 10 men there. There's not even 10 Jewish men. You can see now why Paul didn't want to go to Philippi and the Holy Spirit had to kind of force his hand to go because he's probably thinking, there's not many Jews out there. I don't know who I'm going to talk to. And, and the Holy Spirit leads him out there and there's not even enough Jews to have a synagogue. He has to go down to the river where they would in those days meet as Jewish people if they didn't have a synagogue in the city. And by the way, you were outside of the city. So these are outsiders. The Jews were considered outsiders. They were probably considered illegal worshipers. Right, And so here Paul has to go to the city. He doesn't have a synagogue. He doesn't have all the comforts of a nice Jewish community to settle into. He's got to go to the outsides of the city, the outskirts. And notice the people that he actually has opportunity to meet with, the women, which tells us another thing about the city of Philippi. Not only was there not enough men to have a Jewish synagogue, there was not 10. Most of the Jews there were women. 
And this is who Paul starts to open up to and tell the gospel to. Not men, women. And women in the ancient world were considered outsiders. Now look at this. Look at who the first woman is. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Okay, Lydia. So we've talked about Timothy. Let's talk about Lydia. I am willing to bet that Lydia, this woman, this dealer of purple, would have been one of the last people that Paul would have reached out to if he had the choice in his natural mind to reach out to. See, we are asked to see a couple of things about Lydia. She's from Thyatira, which is Asia. But she's also a seller of purple goods, and purple clothing in the, in the ancient world was the most expensive clothing out there. So this is like Versace. <laughs> she is a dealer of the most expensive clothing, which means, guess what? She's probably pretty wealthy. But she's a worshiper of God, and she's down by the river, worshiping God on the Sabbath, where the Jews would have met outside the city. And then the scripture wants us to see that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to Paul. The Lord opened her heart. First off, the Lord is in charge of opening people's hearts. But secondly, I believe the scripture wants us to see that this is God leading this thing through the whole way. He is the one in charge of how this church in Europe is going to get started. It's going to get started his way. If Paul had his way, I bet Paul would have said, I need 10 men. I need to go to these. I need to have a synagogue. I need to have this. This is how I work, God. I work within the confines of going to the synagogue on the Sabbath and preaching, and then a couple people get saved, and then I take them out of the synagogue, and then we have our own church. And that's so far as how Paul was worked. But not here. Nope. Nope. Paul doesn't have a synagogue. He doesn't have 10 men. He has a woman. He has a woman with a lot of money. And you know she has a lot of money because she says, come to my house and stay. That means she can host Paul's entire missionary team in her house. And what I'm trying to tell you is that Paul has to open his heart for people he otherwise might have ignored. Which brings me to faith goal number two. I think it's a good lesson for all of us. In times of crisis, when we don't get to do what we want to do, maybe we need to have this faith goal to have an open heart for those I might otherwise ignore. Maybe I need to open my eyes to what God is opening up for me instead of always thinking that, nope, this is what I expect God to do in and through me. See, that's what crisis does. That's the decisiveness of a crisis. It causes you to think differently than you normally would. We've had to think differently through this corona crisis as a church. We've had to redefine ourselves. We've had to do ministry differently. I've had to do ministry differently than I've ever done before. It's been a good thing. Look, would I have chosen it? Would I have chosen this crisis? No, I would have run. If this had been mapped out for me and I would have seen this like six weeks before this happened, I would have said, no, thank you, checking out. But I didn't get that choice. This was the crisis God brought on our church. This is the crisis that God brought on our world. And now through the crisis, decisive things are happening in the lives of God's people, yourself included. And so this is a good thing for us to experience crisis because it will shape us and make us Perhaps, in Paul's case here anyway, and for hopefully your case, open to people you might otherwise ignore. Let's go on in the text because there's more to learn. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Okay. Why would Paul do this? The woman is saying something that's right. She's saying these people are servants of the Most High God. They're proclaiming you to the way to, the, the way to salvation. 
why does Paul rebuke her? Well, because Paul discerned that what she said came from the wrong spirit. What she said was actually influenced by demonic spirits. And by the way, we know this from the Gospels. Demonic spirits know Jesus is Lord. They, they know who Jesus is in the Gospels. Every time he's about to cast out a demon, it says, what do you have to do with me, son of the most high God? Right? The demon is always knowing exactly who Jesus is. And Paul shuts the mouth of this demon and this girl because the right message from the wrong spirit is a disaster. The right message from the wrong spirit is a disaster. And this woman was saying the right thing, but with the wrong spirit. You say, well, why is that a disaster? Because eventually the spirit makes demands on the soul. The demonic spirit eventually makes demands on the soul that are irreparable. And so while she may have been saying the right thing, it was said in the wrong spirit, and the wrong spirit had a hold on her life. It had a, it had a bondage on her life, and the bondage of her life needed to be broken because eventually it would have destroyed her life. That's what demons do. See, one of the, one of the strategies of Satan is the old... The old strategy, if you can't beat him, join them. And you got to be on your guard about this because the devil will do that. He will fake like he's with you. He will flatter you. He will, he will act like he's your friend. He will speak to you through uh, imposters, if you will, false brothers. And you've got to be wise about this. You've got to be discerning about this because there are many out there in the world, false brothers, false teachers, false prophets. You need the Holy Spirit to guide you, to give you discernment like it does here like he does here for the Apostle Paul. He commands the spirit out of this girl, and it leaves her. Now look what happens. But when her owners saw that their hope was gone, uh, gain was gone, their hope of gaining money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them off into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept a practice. Now, this passage right here exemplifies what the world does with people. See, this woman... What happened, they, when she was freed from her bondage, the owners of this woman saw that their hope of gain was gone. You know what the human condition is trained to do? The human condition disconnected from God is trained to do this, is trained to use people to serve money. That's what the human condition is trained to do, to use people to serve money. And the gospel comes in, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in, and we learn, our hearts change, and we no longer serve money, we serve people, and we will use money to serve people. So my question is, which one are you? Are you using people to serve money, or are you using money to serve people? A Christian uses money to serve people. But see, there's still in this world today that we live, there's all kinds of trafficking, human trafficking. I think of pornography, for instance. This uses people to serve the almighty dollar. They're not, they're not doing it because they like it. They're doing it because they want to make money, okay? The God of this world is money in many respects. And they traffic young girls and they traffic young men and, and, and abuse them and use them. Same thing with drugs. Same, same thing with um, uh, all, all kinds of financial, questionable financial uh, avenues of, of illicit gain. Using people to serve money. We got to be careful about that. The gospel changes our hearts. And, and yet, look at this too. It, it challenges the idols of the age because when they brought them to the magistrates, they accused them of disturbing the city. What did they do? They, they brought deliverance to the girl, and these guys interpret that as, no, they didn't, he didn't, they didn't deliver the girl. They disturb our city. Always understand this. The gospel will challenge the idols of a culture. The gospel will always challenge the idols of a culture. And so we see here what happens next, which is just horrible for Paul and Silas. 
Verse 22, the crowd joined them in attacking them. And the magistrates, look at this real closely. Let's slow down here for a second. The magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Could you imagine being Paul and Silas here? You have not been through a jury trial. You have not been uh, able to be represented by a lawyer. You have not been able to defend yourselves. Immediately you are attacked, your garments are ripped off, and you are beaten with rods in public. And notice, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Unless you believe that this was a prison of modern times, no. This was a prison where prisoners would have been on top of each other. No running water, no toilets. The place would have stunk. It would have been a, a breeding ground for all kinds of diseases and, and all kinds of smells and who else knows what was in there. And they were in the inner dungeon and their feet were in the stocks, which means their legs were probably stretched up apart from each other and their, and their necks up, held up by a wooden board of some sort. And Paul and Silas, having gone into the city and done what was right, get treated horribly for it. Sometimes that's going to happen. This is why the book of Acts is written, so we can understand that sometimes we will be doing what is right and we will get unjustly treated as a result. Now look at this next passage, which is so phenomenal. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Could, could you just imagine this for a second? They are praying and singing hymns to God in prison. Unjustly treated, unfairly condemned, and they decide, let's worship. Let's just praise God. <laughs> this is a phenomenal moment. I mean, look, at, during the corona crisis, I have been, you have been locked in our homes. And to be honest with you, the last thing I feel like doing sometimes is singing and praising God. Paul and Silas are in a dungeon and praising God, which means you can praise God right where you are. If they could praise God here, you can praise God where you are. You have to learn to praise in spite of what you feel and what you experience. Anyway, they praise, verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that prisoners had escaped. So there's this miracle. There's this miracle earthquake. And oh, and by the way, uh, I learned actually that the, the region of Philippi is still prone to many earthquakes all the time today. So this was not, um, this was not uh, abnormal, but the timing was supernatural, right? So this earthquake opens the doors of the prisons. They're all free. The jailer sees it. Uh, this, this has to be this immensely incredible, powerful moment for Paul. But it starts with them with praise and worship, which brings me to faith goal number three. Find ways to rejoice in spite of present circumstances. Find ways to rejoice in spite of present circumstances. See, I wonder what Paul and Silas were singing about in that prison. I wonder what they were celebrating. And I think I've got an idea. I wonder if that while they were sitting in that prison, they rejoiced, number one, that there was a delivered girl in the city of Philippi who was set free from her demonic bondage. I wonder if, if they just looked back and said, you know what, God did a work in that girl's life. And so if we've got to suffer for her sake, so be it. I wonder if they thought back to Lydia, who they had won to the Lord and, and who had started a church in her house. I wonder if they thought, wow, you know, Lydia's whole family's now saved, and if we've got to suffer for them to get saved, and so be it. See, that's what Christians do. They absorb suffering for the sake of other people hearing. 
That's why we shut down our services here at church during the corona crisis, because we need to make it possible for people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we need to surrender our freedoms and our rights and our privileges for the sake of people hearing the gospel and being safe, then we will do that. Does, do, do, I, do I believe that government has overstepped its bounds? Of course. I am the original Ron Swanson of this office. I have said it several times before. I get excited when I hear the term government shutdown. <laughs> but if we can do what is right in our season, in our time, so that people can hear the gospel, then we've got to do it, even if it means it costs us something. What did Paul and Barnabas rejoice over? I think they rejoiced over the fact that they knew that in spite of all this, God is working out all of this for, our, for their good. That's what Paul would write in Romans 8.28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love and are called according to his purposes. See, that's what you've got to take to heart right now during this corona crisis. God is working for your good. You might not like it, but God is working through it. Secondly, I think that they rejoiced that they had each other. Like Paul and Silas were not alone. I think they rejoiced over that. And so the, 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 the thing that I would like to admonish you with is to rejoice through crisis is number two, cultivate Christian partners. Number one, know that God is working out for your good. But number two, cultivate Christian partners. Do you have friends that you can call, pray with, cry with, moan with, groan with, celebrate with? Paul and Silas had each other. And I think that they celebrated that. And then number three, I think that, can, that you rejoice through crisis by remembering that your life is about being a witness to the message of Jesus, that if God can get glory out of this situation that you're going through, then so be it. If God can get Jesus heard, if God can get the message of Jesus heard through what you're going through, then so be it. And you can rejoice over that. And that's what Paul and Silas did. And eventually God worked powerfully in their lives. But I want you not to be aware of something. I want you to be aware of this. That though God uh, demonstrably delivered Paul and Silas in this moment, years later, Paul would be in prison again, unjustly, again, for the gospel of Christ, again. And writing from a prison years later to that same church in Philippi, he would write these words. I want you to know, Philippians 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being in prison, has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to, the rest of the, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Look what he says in the beginning again. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And my friend, if you can resolve your life to be about advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will never matter what happens to you because you know what happens through you is so much more important, the gospel being heard. That's how you rejoice in crisis. That's how you rejoice. That's how you thank God in spite of what you're going through. God, get glory from this. Verse 28. So the, the jailer is looking for the prisoners, and it says this in verse 28. Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for you're all here. The jailer wanted to kill himself. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, you have to think that the jailer is thinking, how can I get out of this mess? The whole prison is free, and I'm responsible. You know? So his question, how, what must I do to be saved, probably not thinking, what do I need to do to get to heaven? He's probably thinking, how do I get out of this mess so I don't get killed? But Paul doesn't care what he's looking for. He just tells him, here's how you get saved. Believe, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and, look at this, washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. I, I just love this moment because this is the guy that put them in the prison. Remember earlier we talked about it? He's the guy that the magistrates ordered to lock them up and put them into the inner prison. And the guy that was their enemy, the guy that was their opponent, now is the guy washing off their wounds, probably some of the wounds that he himself inflicted. This is the power of the gospel. The gospel can take your worst enemy and turn them into your brother or sister in Christ. Proverbs 16.7 says this, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to live at peace with him. When a man's ways are at pe- when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I love that passage. That's the power of the gospel. It makes enemies friends. Look at the very next verse. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. So he washes their wounds and then he feeds them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and now they throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Now, you have to love this spirit here in Paul because he knows he's been unfairly treated by the government. He knows What they've done to him is wrong. And he doesn't just skulk away. No, he's got a point to make now. But here's the question. I never thought about this until today. I never thought about this. Why didn't Paul talk about being a Roman citizen before he was cast into prison? Why didn't he only talk about it now? And I think think it was an act of faith. I think he refused to depend on his Roman citizenship in the midst of crisis because he didn't want the faith of those new believers in Philippi to rest on the privileges of being a Roman citizen rather than the privileges of being a daughter or son of heaven. And that, my friends, is eye-popping faith. Paul could have said, I'm a Roman citizen, don't hurt me. And they would have been like, okay, we won't hurt you. But he doesn't, he acquiesces. His citizenship of this world, his rights and privileges of this world, he acquiesces it for the sake of people to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow. Friends, if they did that for us, if they did that for Europe, okay, what do we need to do in our day and age for the people who are far from God today? To lay down our rights and to see people hear the gospel of Jesus through us. Man, That's powerful. Verse 38. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Now, you got to see this image. They're like, okay, I'm sorry. We're sorry. Sorry about the beating. Sorry about the rod. Sorry about the prison. Uh, Can you leave now? But look at verse 40. So they went out of the prison, and what did they do? They didn't leave the city. They visited Lydia. They were like, no, no, we're going to have lunch first. (laughs) They visit Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. They, they said, look, before we leave the city, we got to see our, we got to see our family. What family? By the way, did you notice the, the term brothers here? What brothers? R- remember way back in the beginning of the chapter, we talked about that there was, no Sabbath, there was no synagogue there because there was not enough Jewish men there? So what brothers? What brothers are you, what are you talking about? 
it has to be the prisoners who were listening to them sing the songs of, of worship in the prison. They got saved. Then they're the family of God. And, and the jailer, the Roman, the, the, the Philippian jailer, the brothers. See, here's what happens. The gospel makes enemies friends. The gospel makes strangers family members. So faith, goal number four, for times of crisis. Here we go. Last one. To remember that God can change my enemy's heart and make him or her part of my family. Maybe you're at odds with somebody right now. Maybe you're at odds with the opponent on your political sphere or your political spectrum. Maybe you're at odds with somebody in your home right now. Pray that God will open their heart. Pray that God will make them ready to hear the gospel so that that enemy can become a friend. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe it's a, a coworker. And they're just hardened. You see it. They don't want to hear. Okay, pray that God, like he opened Lydia's heart, will open their heart so they might hear the gospel and be saved and be changed and become a member of his family and your friend. See, in the midst of crisis, guys, there's always something we can let God do in and through us. That's that's what a crisis is for. What's a crisis for? Back to our New Testament definition. A chance for God to work in you and for you in ways you never thought possible. That's the episode. I'm glad that you were here tonight. I hope this helped you. Please like and subscribe us on youtube.com slash TV. Like and subscribe, and I will see you here next Tuesday night on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.